Good morning, everybody. So, our passage this morning that I've been asked to read um, from God's precious word is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and beginning to read at verse 1. Oppression, toil, friendlessness. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another, This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if, we, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Thank you, Caroline. And now we have a special guest speaker with us this morning. And Mr. Jonathan Greening. Let's give him a warm Dorchester Community Church welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Martin. Special guest speaker. Wow. It's good to be with you. And uh, I bring, bring love and greetings from, from Leslie, my wife, and uh, Ben and Ollie, our boys, and my mum as well, who's watching it online, I'm sure. As well as my brother, thanks for playing for Paul. And uh, we're so grateful for you upholding him at this difficult time. One of the things I love most about the Bible is that it is honest. It pulls no punches. It tends not to gloss over the imperfections of individuals. We can sometimes look at the characters in the Bible and we think they're so far removed from us. But then we read something that shows that they're just like us. Humans, people, the human condition. The Bible is, as you know, made up of many different styles and types of writing. A library of 66 books of letters and genealogies of history and poetry, even apocalyptic literature. That's doom and gloom stuff. (laughs) Penned by numerous human authors spanning many centuries, 
Yet the Bible speaks with many accents, but one voice, the authentic voice of God. If we have ears to hear, surely this Bible is God's message to all peoples, in all cultures, at all times. Indeed, the Bible says of itself that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now note it doesn't say that all scripture is equally useful or to be taken in isolation or used as a, as a magic uh, recipe for, for life, but to be applied. We all know that the Bible can be taken out of context. Verses can be twisted and misapplied. We can and we should, as believers, read the Old Testament portions that are difficult to understand in the light of the greater revelation of the gospel and subsequent New Testament teachings. For example, our first verse uh, that Caroline read to us is, states that there is no comforter for the oppressed, no help for the tearful. And yet, unlike the writer of these ancient words, we have the knowledge of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit available to us, described by Jesus Christ himself as the comforter. We are not without hope. So please bear this in mind as we examine today's rather unusual in places Bible passage, which does talk about oppression, toil and friendlessness. So much of life is a chasing after the wind. We'll probably come back to that phrase in a, in a little bit. Um, but I was at Portland Bill yesterday, as, as Dee was, or nearby, you were saying, and uh, blows the cobwebs away, doesn't it? <laughs> so I, uh, not quite a storm Malik or a storm Corrie or whatever they're currently battling with, and in Scotland in particular, but it was certainly blustery. And I thought, ah, chasing after wind. Let's chase after the wind, see if I could catch some, bring some along. You can't really do it. But the next best thing, I thought, well, let's, how do I illustrate that? Well, you can chase after your breath in the bubbles, but they don't last long. And there might be some bubbles available for the children if they want to, to do that. You can, don't run around too much chasing them. But the bubbles have the breath in, a bit of my breath in there. But they're fleeting, they're, they're transitory, they, they don't last long. You can't, you can't keep them. That's an illustration of, the, of the, the, the chasing after the wind. But I feel privileged to have been invited just to... to glimpse a a part of what is commonly known as the wisdom books of the Old Testament, and you'll know there are five of these. There's Psalms, which you'll be very familiar with, um, written by by David, most of them. And then there's uh, Job, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, uh, which has got a lot of of truth wrapped up within it. And then comes the three generally attributed to Solomon. The Song of Songs, perhaps written... Uh, by, by Solomon in his, in his youth, 
with romantic involvement. And just a reminder, a heads up, that, uh, uh, that Valentine's Day is just a couple of weeks away. But, uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's the Song of Solomon. Then there's the book of Proverbs, which was perhaps a gathering of his wisdom in his, in his adult years, in his, in his middle age. And I know you looked uh, into a lot of those with Roger last year. And then Solomon, looking back over his long eventful life, authors the book known to us as Ecclesiastes. And you'll know that that is a, a, a Greek version of the, of the Hebrew word, which means to, sort of to, to address an assembly, hence the teacher or a preacher in many Bible verses, versions rather. So it's a, a, you know, a real privilege to, to conclude your mini-series in this book of Ecclesiastes. I understand you might be revisiting it again later in the, in the year. But you've already been well led through these first three chapters of what has been described by at least one professor of Hebrew and probably many others as a mysterious and enigmatic portion of Scripture. That is an understatement if you've been reading it through. Though we can, are reminded, and we have been reminded by, by Chris and Paul and Maria last week, about how much we can learn and apply in our own day and generation from even a quick dip into this fascinating ancient text. All of life is found in the Bible, isn't it? Good, bad and the ugly. Including the most basic and fundamental questions of life. Where have we come from? Where are we going? What do we do while we're here? I see this book, Ecclesiastes, very much as a warning from an older, wiser man who had nevertheless made some unwise choices, compromise which led to idolatry and rebellion, just like us. And he's seeking to pass on his observations and his knowledge and information to those coming after him. We can learn from the mistakes of others, as well as from their successes. I was uh, invited, as all the parents in, in, in Year 9 were invited to Thomas Hardy School this, this week, um, first in, in face-to-face, in-person meeting that we've had for a while. Our eldest son, Ben, is there. And it was to hear a, a, a um, presentation on county lines, drugs gangs, and uh, they're, they're taking this message into the schools. And you think, oh, all these drug gangs, that's something for the big cities or something for America. But actually, they're very active throughout Dorset, including Dorchester and uh, particularly Weymouth, where we live. So they were trying to explain some of the signs to look out for, to be aware as parents to look for in the children. And with the children, we get warned against those uh, as, as young as eight being drawn into um, this deception. But the point I want to make is that we can learn from the mistakes of others. And one of the person who goes, people who goes into the schools is someone who's come out of that, who's been rescued from that life. And who better to tell other people about the dangers than someone who's come from it. And so Solomon has made mistakes. Solomon makes observations which, in the light of the New Testament, we know are earthly, earthbound perspective. 
But we can learn, we can take to heart. For our action, though, it's not just for head knowledge. See, Solomon's viewpoint was rather detached and philosophical in that first chapter. And then, then he revisits the question and goes to where the people live, where the rubber hits the road. And Solomon observed painful truths such as life and death and justice and oppression and time and eternity and the desperate need for justice. And in this chapter four, Solomon records his observations from visiting various places, watching people go through a variety of human experiences from the courtroom, we can loosely call the marketplace and the highway. So firstly, Solomon visits the courtroom where he finds oppression and corruption everywhere he looks. The very place, as in the political arena, where there should be justice and righteousness, the teacher sees innocent people being denied fair judgments by power-hungry officials who thought that they themselves were above the law. Not any contemporary uh, analogies there. But he saw around and he saw that there was nothing new under the sun. It's been said that God's people should read three books. The books we call, the book we call the book of books, the book of the Bible, the book of nature and uh, what the natural world says to us, but also the book of humankind, of human nature, of people, reading people where they are. Others would say that we do well to have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, which is why it's so important when we have our prayers, Dave and Gloria, that we do touch on those issues which are alive in the, in the world today. We need to be informed. God knows and we can learn. God always takes a very dim view where there's oppression. There are scores of verses which say about this, just a few. Zechariah says, Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Jeremiah says, Do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood. And the psalmist says, May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Be in no doubt, God is righteous and just and demands nothing less for his world, especially from his followers. The Old Testament prophet Micah could answer the self-posed question, what does the Lord require of you? With a short but direct summary, act justly, love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. And Jesus' very own manifesto, his mission statement, we could say, uh, stated by him, as Maria reminded us last week, that uh, he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read out a portion of what we know to be Isaiah chapter 61 and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus Christ is the ultimate liberator. 
He has come to proclaim freedom, to bring salvation, to open heaven's gate. So we must demonstrate the heart of God in our words and our deeds, praying for goodness to triumph over evil, preaching and proclaiming, working tirelessly towards God's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. And sadly, we know all too well that these divine priorities are rarely held among those in charge. For the wealthy and the privileged so often turn a blind eye to the needs of others for self's sake. Solomon was disgusted with what he saw in the corridors of power. And so he went into the marketplace to watch various labourers at work. You see, employment is a God-given gift for most folk. Ideally, there should be great fulfilment and deep satisfaction in what is necessary for life and for society to function. But you know as well as I do that reality is very different so often. It was the late um, Warren Wiersbe. I hope you quoted him the other week. So I get a lot of my ideas from him. And he helpfully pointed out in the middle of this chapter, we find Solomon considering four types of workers. The industrious one, the idle, the integrated, and the independent. You see, the hard-working laborer becomes disillusioned precisely because he or she is envious of others. Competition and envy often go hand in hand. Of course, we've got to make that distinction between healthy and fair competition and unfair. You see, the desire to have more than others can overcome that want to remain honest, and that's where things are seriously wrong. The boys were watching the programme off Channel 5, I think, uh, a while ago. It's called Rich Kids Go Skint. And, uh, and they have these really wealthy people uh, who live a complete extreme and they swap places for a, a day or a, a while with someone who's sort of on the breadline, on the poverty line. And, uh, and just to see the, the, the eye-opening effect, it's quite, quite moving. Obviously, it's hammed up for the, for the TV, but it's, uh, it's, isn't that just an exaggeration of where we are? Now, anyone who's visited places where people are struggling and I've been privileged to to visit the Philippines not so long ago it does put things into perspective the things we moan about things which we we don't you know we we feel we deserve we take for granted and not only denied to others but the very necessities the essential things are lost on others We can get caught up in the rat race, trying to get more and more and more. But some fall into poverty due to their own actions, and and this is where Solomon observes the lazy man, the idle man, saying that he folds his arms, he, he brings calamity upon himself, he ruins himself, and there is a place for individual responsibility. I think, uh, oh yeah, I picked this up off of... Um, from my mum's house I can have it back later it just says hard work never hurt anyone but why take any chances and I thought well that, that's, um, that reminded me of the, of the other 
thing that says, oh, work fascinates me. I could sit and watch it for hours. But there is a sense in which God has given gifts which need to be stirred up, that need to be applied. We need to use the gifts God's given us. Jesus talked about burying our talents, didn't he? And um, that's financial, but that can also be our abilities. So scared to risk using the gifts that God's given us to not take that step. And then there's what we may term the integrated one, the person who avoids both extremes, who appears content. And it reminds me of the, the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And it's reminiscent of the, of the pro- proverb that Solomon slips into this bit of, the, uh, of Ecclesiastes, as more later in the, in the chapter. But he puts in that one, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, which I take to mean having a healthy work-life balance. And how's yours? You know, lots of people have taken this time, if there's an upside to COVID and working from home, it's that people have reassessed their lives. And several people in our own church, a couple um, that we we were talking to during the week, uh, Leslie, weren't we? And they said, well, if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. So they've changed, had a complete change of life, taken, taken the opportunity to change something for a healthier work-life balance. Reassess your life. It's good to take stock. We're still in January. We can still be the beginning of a year. It's a good time to take stock. That brings Solomon and us to the fourth type of person that he observes, um, possibly on the highway, the independent one. This person who's on his own, the one who has and no brother, and no son. I'm blessed with three brothers, and two sons, and one wife. <laughs> we praise God for the family that God's put around us. But sometimes we may have to have other family within the church. That's what we're here for as church, isn't it? Together, to come together. We're not meant to be alone. God himself said it's not good for man to be alone. We need an antidote to the loneliness of an individual. Friendship and cooperation. See, on the highway, the highway code was revamped, wasn't it, yesterday? First time for for years. I I don't know all these 50 rules that have been added or changed. Um, But some of the rules on the highway here, there's like three things, really. He's talking about... Uh, working, he comes back to work a lot, doesn't he? And walking, and then there's the warmth. And it's about, in all of these ways, we need someone to help us. We watch a lot of TV as our family, don't we? A lot of rubbish. But uh, Ollie watches a show called I Shouldn't Be Alive. And it's uh, one of these it's true stories that have been reenacted in a very dramatic fashion. And I was actually thinking about this and I had it in the background and I pricked up my ears because there was a a couple who were lost on some remote mountainside and no one knew they were missing and they were cold and hungry and so they had to huddle together for survival 
I'm not sure how they survived, but they said they were driven on by grit, encouragement, and sheer determination. And they were both able to, to encourage each other. And there was a, a, an illustration of, of this just on the TV, this on the news this week. There was a guy, George Delane, who was trapped deep underground following the collapse of the tunnel in the Brecon Beacons. He was exploring there, and it was described by reporters as the deepest and most complex cave system in Great Britain. And his rescue involved up to 300 volunteers working together against the clock. And I think it took 56 hours, but they got him out alive, and he was so grateful. Teamwork can achieve amazing things. Rescued by Lauren Daigle. God is in the business of rescuing. If we work together, who knows what God will do? There are people lost. People are, are Solomons out there. There are people uh, who, are, who are worried and baffled and puzzled by life. What's, what are we here for? What's the point of it? It's hopeless, despairing. And we have a message of hope in Jesus Christ. Solomon describes a rather unexpected inclusion at the end of this passage, a reference to a three stranded cord in verse 12 this is often used in wedding sermons as a as a baptist pastor i've used it myself a a few times um it's you know because it lends itself to a bride and a groom two becoming one and consciously inviting jesus in as the third strand the divine member of that union provides the strength needed for the inevitable challenges which lie ahead. It's no coincidence, I think, that God is a perfect, imperfect unity in Trinity. And you certainly don't have to be newly married to recognise how essential it is to have God in your life. When Jesus was asked to sum up the law of Moses, he said, love God and love your neighbour. And keeping in these commandments... By default, basically, you'll keep all the rest. I heard a a famous Spurgeon quote on the Christian radio this week, and it's to do with faith, hope, and love. Faith goes up the staircase built by love and looks out the window opened by hope. Faith goes up the staircase built by love and looks out the window opened by hope. Well, where does all this get us then? In the canon of scripture, Ecclesiastes is one of the most confusing, downbeat, despairing, negative and pessimistic portions of scripture in places. And yet it contains truth and faith, hope and love. Somebody once said, Life isn't a destination, it's a journey. And sometimes that journey is tough. We know life is tough. So what's our response? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, cries the teacher. Vanity is used in the familiar King James Version. The Hebrew is hard to accurately translate. Many modern versions say meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, some pointless, some use futility, and the message renders it smoke, 
smoke. It's all smoke, which seems a bit random till you realize that literally that word can have the, the, uh, the sense of vapor, mist, or breath. Brings us back to the bubbles again. Used throughout Ecclesiastes, a chasing after the wind, an impossible task. So many people grasp life only to find it slip through their fingers. Don't be one of those that's, that's so busy building for the future that you let the present slip through your hands. Don't be so intent on holding on to something which you can't hold on to. It passes away. It's those two extremes, isn't there? There's, there's one where we're always wanting the, the other and one where we just want what we've got. The, act, the, the life God calls us to is, to is to enjoy, to live in the moment, to hold lightly to that which we cannot grasp anyway. When we consider the meaning of life, and I understand that's been the theme of this church for quite some time, and that is just going to be changing next week. It's a bit of an em- emphasis to living in hope. But I wonder what the meaning of life is. Well, there are lots of people who come up with ideas, and those of us of a certain age might immediately think the meaning of life, Monty Python, uh, a f- a funny or blasphemous film, or, or both. Well, there's some, they, they come up with a summary, which is perhaps a, um, you know, a little bit at odds with, with uh, Solomon's summary, which we find right at the end of Ecclesiastes, which is in the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You see, Monty Python will say, try and be nice to people, avoid eating fat, read a good book every now and then, get some walking in, try and live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. It's a bit of a parody of being nice, do your best. The teacher, the preacher... Solomon himself says, Now all's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the duty of all humankind. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. See, if we leave God out of it, then we just pick and choose. We make our own, our, our own um, purpose in life. But Solomon, it looked at all of the things that he's, that he's observed, all his comments. When he looks around, he sees that life is hard. When he looks up, he sees that God is there. When he looks within, he sees that we're made for more than this. God has set eternity in the heart of people. And when he looks ahead, he sees that fact of death, which we share with all people, but he sees the judgment. He sees that there is a purpose, there is a day of reckoning. And we who live the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ have a greater awareness of the victory which has been won over sin, death, judgment and hell through the glorious events of Easter. Now I'm new to the TV show, uh, the Netflix, the hit Netflix black comedy, Afterlife. But I've been really gripped by that. 
Um, Ricky Gervais, a well-known atheist who's written and directs and stars in the show as the main character, Tony, uh, works through his feelings and in his reaction following the tragic death of his, of his wife from cancer. And you can almost hear the words of Solomon, saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, it's meaningless, it's pointless. And initially, at least, he, he's in self-destruct mode, and, and in his grief, he wants to drag everybody else down as well. It's almost a modern-day take on these age-old words of Solomon. Now, I'm not unreservedly recommending this show. It's very, it's very strong, quite shocking in its language, its crudity, sex and its drugs, and it's blasphemy. But I learned it's the most watched British comedy show in the, in the world. People connect with the theme of grief and loss. And so I interviewed with, with Ricky where he said he got 300 letters the first week it was, it was shown. He said letters. These weren't tweets or thumbs up. These were left pen to paper letters. And everywhere he goes, people come and say, I, I've, I connect with what you say. And he says the older you get, the more you have to grieve over. And there are many there who would agree with that, would say that death is a certainty. We can put it out of our minds. It's a taboo subject. And yet 10 out of 10 people die. Life can be tough. Life can be extreme. But there is hope. There is hope for the believer. Well, Ricky Gervais would appears to reject Christianity in its entirety. He would perhaps endorse what the late psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl said. The meaning of life is to give life meaning. And we said, well, yeah, there's something in that. We Christians would agree. But it doesn't really shed a lot of life, a lot of light on the universal quest for the meaning of life. Christianity does. Christianity says, huddle up. Hold on. Help others. Huddle up to one another. Hold on to your faith in Christ. Help others. Well, God has put us here for a person. Church is a team where we encourage and build one another up. There is a time for building up. And it's you as a church in a period of interregnum. Be sure to build one another up. Don't tear each other down. Believe and not doubt. Trust and obey. There is a time for everything. Mention of Holocaust survivor reminds it was Memorial Day, wasn't it, this week? And there was a quote I saw that said, uh, with regard to how tough life can be in extremists, one day the world will realise that all hate produces is more hate. And as Christians... We follow the one who says that we should only hate hate. That's the only hate we should have, and it comes by another name. Love. Let's love God and others. I believe love is the purpose and goal of life, and perfect love is found in Jesus for life and for eternity. I wanted to finish with a... Uh, um, a statement of faith that I came across um, 
I listened to Lauren Daigle's song, the one, was it You Say? And it's for the, you said it applies to people with low, low self-esteem and so, low self-worth. And uh, it, it, it recognises that and says, well, God's view of us, as expressed in Jesus, is very different. And her response came a re- repeated refrain, I believe, I believe, I believe. And then I came across this, came, one of these things that came up on my feed, and it's from Jennifer Dukes Lee, who's a, a, another American Christian lady, and she just wrote a personal statement of faith. I don't know how far I'll get through this, but um, I just suggest that you might take stock, write what it is you believe and why, and if you're not, if it's a bit fuzzy in places, well, well come and talk to somebody and try and say, well, you know, what, how you live comes out of the heart, what you believe. And the very faith we have is a gift from God. Well, Jennifer says this as her creed. I believe that being a Christian isn't a thing we do only on Sundays. Church isn't just something that happens at the altar. Grace abounds everywhere, sometimes when we least expect it. I am a truth seeker, a Bible believer, a grace clinger. I believe in a saviour who died for the outcast. And for the popular kid, the preacher, the doubter, the rude waitress, the junkie, the guy who cut me up in traffic, I believe a saviour who died even for me. I believe that even if people make fun of you, even if your own Christian community rolls its eyes at you, it's still okay to be on fire for Jesus, to wear a Christian t-shirt, to call yourself a Jesus freak or to raise your hands in church. And I also think it's okay if you don't. I believe every moment is an opportunity to spy grace, to offer love, to find a way to forgive. I believe these things can happen anywhere, in funeral homes, in subway stations, and in the sandbox at the park right after a mean kid throws sand in your toddler's eye. I also believe this. I am saved, but I'm still a sinner. I believe in scandalous grace, that the cross is the most priceless and costly gift the world has ever seen. I believe it really is all because of Jesus. I believe Jesus is more than a wise teacher, a fine philosopher, a miracle worker. I believe that he is God, the living word who became flesh, that he voluntarily atoned for my sin by dying on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I believe the Holy Spirit is a divine person. I believe he's the same spirit who hovered over the waters and who inspired the prophets and who fell upon the first believers. The very same spirit who guides and empowers believers today. I believe that salvation is a work of God's free grace, not the result of human works, being good or taking part in religious ceremonies. I believe that God exists. I know he does. I spoke to him just a few moments ago. All people matter to God and they matter to me. I believe in miracles because I am one. I'm a mess. And because of that, I believe I will always need forgiveness until the last light of this life fades. I believe Jesus Christ is coming again. I believe this is not the end. I believe there is hope for all people. And that love came to rescue the weak and the broken and the helpless. And love came to rescue me. And now, I, sinner, now falling at his feet, believe I will live with him forever and ever. Amen. It's never too late to come to Jesus. It's never too late to come back to him. 
Amen.